Welcome back, everyone, to So As We Were Saying, a physical therapy podcast. This is season three, episode two. Today, we're going to be discussing ACL criterion-based rehab progression. We're going to talk about different graphs, post-operative rehabilitation. Mike, welcome back. Thank you, David. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, we can put out some good content today. I think you might be relying on me a little bit more so than usual, so hopefully I don't let the listeners down. That's all right, Mike. I'm going to let you take the lead on this one because I know that you did an internship that was pretty much six months of 18 ACLs a day, <laughs> every single day. So I'm expecting you to really impress on this one. Yeah, it was a it was a uh, decent amount of them. Um, so, anything we talk about first? You want to do like maybe graph types? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. You're playing frisbee. You tear your ACL. You know you need surgery. Doc says, Mike, you can choose any graft you want. What are you going with? Yeah, the two main ones are going to be for your athlete: your bone patellar uh, tendon bone autograft, and then your hamstring autograft. It, it, it's it's mostly surgeon preference. Some surgeons will prefer hamstrings. Some surgeons will prefer the bone patellar tendon bone. I think more so with like your heavy like contact athletes, football players, and things like that. Uh, they might prefer the bone patellar tendon bone because it gets a little bit better bony fixation compared to like the with the hamstring graft. You have one bony fixation, and then the other end of, of the graft when they fix it to the femur is going to be uh, like a soft, soft tissue to bone fixation, and so the Thinking there is that that fixation isn't going to be quite as strong if someone has to put a high demand through their knee. So big, strong football players, things like that, they might lean more toward that patellar tendon. Um, like I said, it's going to be surgeon preference. I don't think the outcomes are really very different when you compare the hamstring to the bone patellar tendon bone. Uh, and I think that because the surgeons know that and trying to avoid disrupting the kind of extensor mechanism as you remove those cannon grafts from the tibial tuberosity and the inferior aspect of the patella, that can create issues with kneeling and things like that. But the fixation techniques with the hamstring grafts are getting better. So I think that gap might be closing a little bit as technology kind of improves. The only other like autograft that they'll consider using is the quad tendon. And I think the thinking there is that it's just big meaty tendon so they can get this like thick, like honking graft and just kind of put that in there. And I think in like a few studies where it's where like, I think the, the load to failure was a little bit higher in like the quad tendon grafts and they were able to just harvest just a thicker graft because the tendon's so big. That being said, you are disrupting the extensor mechanism and there's not as much studies on that. So I, I still don't think it's like a, I don't think you're going to see it like widespread. I guess the other thing would be your allografts. So that's going to be more in your older population or people that don't really want to get back to sport. Pull from a cadaver. It can be like Achilles, peroneal uh, tendon maybe. But that's going to be a weaker graft. It's going to take longer to heal. So if you want to get back to sport, that's probably not your best bet. A lot of times surgeons will start to ask people around the, they'll, they'll start to give their patients the option around the time they turn like 30-ish, give or take. But my, my recommendation is always if, if you want to get back to playing any sort of like higher intensity, even like weekend warrior type sport, I'll generally recommend giving that, that, that the patient do an autograph. I think that covers most it? Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm in line with that same thinking. What I what I want to get your thoughts on is before I was in PT school and I was an aide and doing internships in PT school, there were some clinicians that felt like the hamstring was crucial to act as an active restraint to anterior translation to protect the ACL. And when we were in school, I feel like that line of thinking kind of fell out of favor, which I get because um, it's speculative in theory. I don't know if there's any research to back it up, but I wanted to know where you felt along 
along that line, when you do decide to use a hamstring autograph, do you feel like it impairs any ability for the hamstring to restrain the uh, anterior translation of the tibia? I mean, you're making sacrifices no matter what graft you choose, right? Like that's a very theoretical way of thinking about with like the hamstring uh, acting as a dynamic restraint for your ACL, which like is important, I guess, in theory. But then when you take your bone patellar tendon bone, autograft you're at that point, like disrupting the extensor mechanism, increasing the risk of anterior knee pain, which might inhibit the quad, which we, we know if, if someone has decreased quad force output, then they're at a higher risk of tearing their ACL. So I think it's like a little bit of give and take. You're, you're, like, you're going to make sacrifices either way, but I don't think there's anything to prove that hamstring graft is like going to inhibit the hamstrings to a point where they can't restrain the ACL. I don't know. I, I think I think that's theoretical. Like it makes sense in theory, but you're going to, you're taking tissue from something and the alternatives that we have are taken from a cadaver, which is going to be weaker. We know that um or take it from the patellar tendon or quad tendon which is disrupting the extensor mechanism which like we know that's the most important thing to get back after an injury to help prevent further injury so right yeah 100 i think there's not a perfect option but i think their bone patellar tendon bone graft is probably what i would choose yeah, if i were I to have it that's probably what i would choose too but i think it depends on like the surgeon like if i go to a surgeon that you know has been recommended that people trust that's well known in the area and they you know feel more comfortable with a hamstring graft or that's like what they do i'd rather have the surgeon do what he's most comfortable with because i don't think there's really a significant difference in the literature on like which ones have have, have a lower retail rate or anything uh one thing to take into account is with the bone patellar tendon bone uh autographs is if someone has to kneel a lot for like their occupation someone who is on like a contractor or something like that or someone who cleans someone even in like maybe like the military that might need to kneel to like shoot or something so th- things along those lines if they have to kneel a lot that might create some increased discomfort so a hamstring might make more sense for them for sure for sure i agree i think um you always got to go with what the surgeon's more comfortable with and usually if that's the case they're gonna call the shot anyways but yeah i think that is a good discussion to have just because i know there's a few different graphs out there and oftentimes it's tough to know or you know you might have a patient that you're doing some range of motion preoperatively and and they want your opinion on what graphs you prefer, what graphs you think are best. And I think it's important to at least know a little bit about each type and, and where it's harvested and what the implications are. As far as rehab goes, Mike, let's jump into the immediate post-operative phase. Now, this is kind of like day one post-op to two weeks in. What are your top priorities? What are you focusing on? And then give us like a mock exercise program of what you're prescribing. Yeah, um, I think it all depends on the surgeon. I think when when they get in, some surgeons hold them out a little bit longer, some get them in a little bit sooner. Where I'm at now, the surgeon that I work with holds them out a little bit longer. I think and I think the thing in there is because it's mostly like younger kids and he's not as concerned about losing motion. But the big thing is just gradually get it moving like really gently. Uh you want to calm the knee down, you can ice it, kind of do whatever that stuff is. Maybe get the kneecap moving just a little bit with like some light teller mobility and get the quad firing is gonna be probably like the biggest thing. So just get them in, get them in clinic get the knee moving just a little bit to kind of help calm it down kind of pain-free and then get them going firing their quad so that'll look like quad sets maybe some short arcs in that last you know 10 to 15 degrees of extension where you're in theory not going to be stressing the acl maybe some gentle isometric long arcs if they have that range of motion early on but if they don't i'm not even going to worry about it do some stim get them going on you know some maybe some straight leg raises with their brace on and flexion abduction maybe extension 
extension if they don't have like a bone patella tendon bone monograph then at that point you're putting the hamstring in so i, I tend to just kind of stay away from that a little bit early on but i think the big things are you, you want to make sure that you get the knee moving primarily getting it straight the flexion aspect will tend to come but if you don't get that extension back in those first like two maybe three weeks then it just gets a little bit harder to get it back yeah i agree i think the priorities are restore full knee extension priority number one and i think that's coupled with getting the quad firing again decreasing some swelling getting that extensor lag as close to zero as we can and then trying to at least get a 90 degrees of passive knee flexion with the goal of creeping towards 105 110 as you get deeper you know week two week three week four because once they get to about 105 the literature here says about 100 but i think it's more like between 105 and 110 they can start to get a full revolution on the bike and then that repetitive motion is very therapeutic for the knee joint itself definitely doing some nmes stim teller mobs and then i keep it pretty simple i do some heel slides passive range of motion of the knee quad setting short arc quad on a half foam which i think is like zero to ten like you mentioned some straight leg raises with the brace and then mike give us some guidance let's say you have you're in a very rural area. I think we've been kind of accustomed to like very structured hospital systems, but you know, having worked in some rural areas, you do end up getting these ACLs that show up and there's no protocol. The patient doesn't know anything. They weren't given anything. And it's really up to your clinical judgment to progress them and, and do the full rehabilitation. And it gives us a little bit more freedom to make some decisions that we're really accustomed to following a strict protocol on. So tell us about your decision-making. If somebody comes in, they're locked in a brace, Let's say they're locked in extension or even zero to 90. And they, they said, I, I have no idea of when I have to get rid of this brace or what, what the progression is. Help us go through your thought process of when do you feel like you can unlock the brace if it's locked or when do you feel like you can discharge the brace if there's no guidance? Yeah, I think the big thing is that I want them to be able to do a straight leg raise without any quad bike. That's probably going to be like the most important one. And I want them to, I kind of want them to like wean out of the brace. So start walking around the house and kind of get used to it. I, I, I don't want them, they come in, they have no quad leg, it looks good. And then I say, all right, get rid of your brace and just go walk and be free. And then they go to, they go shopping one day with like their parents or their wife or their husband or something. And then all, all of a sudden their knee just kind of like explodes or they go to, like high school football game with their friends they're walking around they're on their knee and then they get this like big increase in swelling because they just were doing a little bit too much on it and the knee just like couldn't handle it so i think no quad lag and then i say let's get rid of it for around the house for a little bit and over the next week or two we'll wean you to being out of it completely um that being said i'll, I'll keep a minute for at least like four to six weeks just to help kind of things calm down i just don't want them doing too much even if their knee looks great i think i still want them in a brace for like prolonged ambulation for probably at least that like four ish to six weeks give or take yeah and talk to us a little bit about the crutch discharge situation as well when do you wean them down to one crutch no crutch is that more of just like a clinical feel for how their swelling looks how their range of motion looks and then kind of providing some education based on activity volume so if they're going walking for two hours or they're going to be standing at a ball game watching their sibling play do you instruct kind of like a partial one crutch depending on on what they're doing the crutch winning is definitely more of like, like a clinical field but making sure that they can kind of do do what they want to do it looks good and it's not like blowing up their knee. yeah for sure i i agree with all that i think another clinical pearl is restoring a normal gait pattern i think we saw this a lot with your mentor when you were doing all the acl stuff is doing like the exaggerated walking with emphasis on heel strike, eccentric control of knee flexion, trying to restore a normal gait pattern to decrease the tibiofemoral joint reaction forces if you're walking on a, on a stiff knee. Anything you want to add to that, Mike? 
No, I think that's good. Kind of like walk people through that. It's just a very simple gait training. A lot of times put some sort of like support in their opposite side, whether it be a crutch or even like a little dowel for assistance. And then emphasizing like a heel strike where the legs kind of getting out in front of them and having them do a quad set where they can drive their knee straight. And then gradually loading up that involved side, make sure that their quads doing its job of, of decelerating, decelerating that knee flexion. And then from there, having them contract their quad and try and drive themselves tall. So trying to use the quad more functionally during the gate. For sure. And then at what point do you start adding some weight bearing, like some wall squats, wall sits, maybe some step ups, doing some single leg balance? When do you feel like it's appropriate to transition into this part of the treatment? If it's an isolated ACL, like there's no it's uncomplicated, no meniscus stuff, nothing like that. I might put them on like the leg press, like zero to 45, like the first day that they're in to see me. Uh, I like the leg press because I can like really kind of control the weight and make it feel comfortable for the patient. A lot of times like the weight bearing stuff is just, it just feels like too much and they just compensate so much. So a leg press or even I have like a total gym in, in my clinic too. If they feel comfortable kind of hopping onto that thing, we can kind of get them working. Same thing, kind of that zero to 45, five range, just get them moving it in like a, a, a really light way that kind of gets them feeling a little more comfortable in, in that knee. And then I'll get them weight bearing as soon, as soon as they can. Right. So like a little like wall squat at 45, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it looking kind of crappy early on. Like if they're shifted away from that leg, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with all of that. I just throw them in front of the mirror and I say, here's what I'm seeing here. Here's how I see you cheating. Our goal was to get back to being normal. We'll, we'll just kind of slowly work there as you feel comfortable. Uh, but I start to add that stuff in pretty soon. I, I like, I was, like I said, I, I, I've been getting most of my patients around, you know, four-ish weeks post-op. And a lot of times I'll add that in within their first two visits or so, some, something something simple like that. The one little caveat there is if they have a, a meniscus injury, sometimes I'm, I just take a little bit more time um, adding in like weight bearing stuff and until I'm confident that they understand what the like restrictions might be like I don't want them loading in like deeper ranges of knee flexion early on and I think that's mostly the like I haven't seen much in like the literature that like says that that like increases their tear rates but it's in multiple protocols that I've seen uh, where the, the the surgeon wants wants them to avoid those deep ranges of knee flexion, especially for those like posterior sided tears where you might increase stress to the repair site so yeah, for sure. And we'll we'll try to get into some of the meniscal repairs if we have some time here. I think the main thing to note is more limited weight bearing early on, especially with the repairs. And it depends on your surgeon. Sometimes they'll go as far as six weeks and sometimes they'll start some gradual loading at like week three, week four, building up to, to week six. I think that could deserve its own entire conversation. So hopefully we'll have a little bit of time. Maybe we could touch on that towards, towards the end here. But I think you made a good point about the actual weight bearing aspect with the leg press how they might favor the non-involved side compared to the involved side. So I think a little bit of force weight bearing to try to decrease some of that reluctance to load the surgical side is something to definitely incorporate into rehab. And it's just something, a different variable that you want to account for outside of your typical strength and range of motion. Yep. I agree. Yeah. It covers it for most of like the early stuff. Yeah, I think so. What I wanted to get into now is like you're in week four to six, the range of motion is restored, no quad lag, they're out of the brace, crutches are gone. You kind of got your patient past that early phase, checked all your boxes. Now, as you transition to strengthening, Mike, do you add long arc quad? Do you do a protected range? Do you do full range? What does your next step strengthening phase look like? And even your proprioceptive dynamic static balance progression look like? Yeah, I mean, the big thing in that next phase is just start to get 
get them strong, like as strong as you possibly can, but just kind of like gradually, right? So like same thing, try not to blow up the knee. It's still a healing surgery. So you have to be careful. So some of the, like the in theory, like protected graft ranges, right? Where, where you don't want to go crazy. It's going to be greater than like, I've seen 60, I've seen 45, kind of that like 45 to zero on your open chain, like knee, exten- knee extensions. I think in school, we kind of talked about 90 to 60 as being like your completely safe range where you're not going to put any sort of anterior strain on the ACL. But like if a patient, if I'm trying to have them go to 60, I have my hand there for the first few. And then I say, all right, try it on your own. And they go to like 50. I'm not going to lose sleep over it. I think that we probably are a little bit more protective of the grass than we probably need to be. If you have a little bit of weight on your knee extension and your patient goes to like 45 when you want them to go to 60, I don't think you need to lose sleep over it. It's not like it's this crazy high amount of weight where we're going to put an insane amount of stress through the ACL. So as long as you're keeping it pretty light early on as they're kind of introducing motion, probably going to be fine. Same thing with like squatting and things. I think we learned, you know, zero to 45 as the kind of like gold standard for closed chain stuff in order to really get in, in order to kind of make sure that, that that ACL kind of stays within it's like kind of like neutral range where you're not going to put stress through the graph. And so if you're going to do that, that gets, you have to get pretty creative with your exercises because it's really hard to get a lot of quad activity in that in those kind of like end ranges because it's really easy to cheat using like your hips and glutes and things like that so if i'm staying in that range which i tend to do early on for any of like my moving type stuff i'll try and like i'll I'll try and get a little more quad activity by putting like a theraband or some sort of like cable tke like behind their knee so it kind of forces them to drive into that start pretty light and then as they feel more comfortable they can get a little bit more but there was an article that came out gosh i don't remember when it was see if i can find the author here i think it was escamilla and a few other people. I think Kevin Wolf was on it. And they went through a whole bunch of different exercises that we'd normally do for like ACL stuff, like open chain knee extensions and squats and things. And what they found is that with like your squatting type activities, even if you're going pretty deep, as long as you maintain your like heel on the ground in theory, which will increase your hamstring co-activation as you go into your squat. And like, like we talked about before, that hamstring kind of acts as like a dynamic restraint for your ACL. It seems to not have as much anterior tibial translation and strain on the ACL as we might think. So after reading that, I, I, I same thing as kind of with like the knee extension, I started getting a little bit less kind of like scared to kind of push into those deeper ranges of knee flexion. So do it more so on something where it's more controlled, like a leg press or something like that, where I can really control that weight and the patient can kind of be comfortable with it or like a double leg sit to stand where if the patient feels uncomfortable at all, they can't control the load, they just plop their butt in a chair. Early on those sit to stands, I normally have like an Airx pad so it's a little more comfortable and then as time goes on, I said, I don't think we need to be as scared of the deeper ranges of knee flexion with our closed chain stuff as we originally thought that we might have to be as long as that heel stays planted on the ground and we get that little bit of hamstring co-activation kind of help protect that graft. Yeah. And to kind of put our listeners back in a, a time frame for the rehabilitation, we're kind of in the four to six, four to eight weeks realm right now where we just got past the early range of motion quad activation phase is starting to transition to more strengthening and balance. There's some good evidence that shows that adding a um, balance and neuromuscular re-education program has no adverse effects on the laxity of the joint and then self-reported knee outcomes 
after ACL reconstruction were actually improved with a neuromuscular rehabilitation program. So you definitely want to start like your single leg balance, even add in maybe some like quote unquote sports specific stuff, not really, but like more of like if they're a football player, they can throw the football to you like while standing on one leg, things to just kind of spice it up. And then Mike, during this time frame, are you also starting kind of like your hip strengthening to work on like the hip external rotators? Like are you doing some clamshells, bridges, sidesteps, those type of exercises? Or when do you wean into those? Yeah. So in that like first visit, if there's someone that wants to get back to sport, right, I'll add in some, you know, sideline hip abduction with their like brace on. That's like way early on. And then as they feel more comfortable, then we'll add in some clamshells, some bridges. I might hold off on the bridges just a teeny bit longer if they had hamstring autograph, just because I don't want too much isolated loading through that hamstring. But if I do want to add it in, I might just have them keep their feet flat and spread their knees a little bit wider. That'll just get a little bit more more glute than it will hamstrings. That might be how I kind of introduce some of that. And then, yeah, so things like sidestepping with the bands, all all the kind of basic stuff that we think of, I think is fine. One thing you can do is start to work into just like your single leg strengthening here I'll, I'll tend to start pretty light like a really small step maybe around like week six or so give them a little dowel for assistance so they kind of have something to kind of help them balance if they look good some people look great around this time some people not you know so it, it just i think you have to wait until your patient's ready but the little small like i'm a big fan of backwards step downs to start because that's going to get a lot more you can almost like cheat your way through that one a little bit more you don't have to use your quad as much so just getting them more used to that single leg stability as they're kind of like doing a dynamic motion. So a lot of times my, my treatment sessions are limited to 45 minutes. So I have to try and maximize my time as best as possible. So I tend to do a little bit less, just like stand on one foot and, and, and balance than I do just try and slowly work in some single leg strengthening. I think killing two birds with one stone a little bit more so than I will if I just have them stand on one foot and we have a little catch. I will say practice stand on one foot at home if it looks kind of crappy, but yeah, I think I, think I, I tend to go more the single leg strengthening route and then progressing that to single leg strengthening on more unstable surfaces. Yeah, that's great. That's great, Mike. I think that's one point that, you know, you and I haven't even personally discussed, but I think makes a lot of sense and is definitely more efficient and functional. So that is something that I will start to do, Mike. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Now, moving forward, looking at eight to 12 weeks, you want to start improving that quadriceps index. So that's going to be the uninvolved side or the involved side compared to the uninvolved side, trying to achieve at least 80% quadriceps strength. Now this is challenging if you don't have a biodex to do isokinetic or isometric quadriceps testing to get an accurate value. I know there's some like handheld dynamometer techniques, but in theory, if you have it available, you should be utilizing it. And I think I want to get a little bit into the actual internal interpretation of some of the biodex findings, because even if you have a machine, there's, it spits out a lot of information. So I think it's kind of nice to be able to hone in and be able to analyze that information when it's printed for you. So Mike, talk us through what your perspective is on the biodex quadriceps strengthening, because it is important. There was a Delaware Oslo study. I think it was like four or five years ago that indicated that quadriceps strength compared to the uninvolved side was the one of the largest predictors of ACL retear along with returning to sport before nine months. So I think keeping an eye on the quadriceps strength is definitely important. What's your take on the biodex testing? Do you prefer isometric versus isokinetic? And how do you interpret the results when you get that printout? 
So I haven't had access to a Biodex since grad school. So I haven't really had the chance to kind of parse it out. I haven't really done too many literature deep dives. But whenever we did it, we did it isometrically at 60. And the thinking there is that you can see one peak force output. So how much force can you put out, which is probably the most important. And then also what you can see on a Biodex, which is nice that you can't see in some of the other things, is like rate of force development. So how fast were you able to get up to that peak force, which I think is super important because that's what we need for sport, right? When Whenever we're decelerating, it doesn't matter if you can get up to a crazy amount of force. If you can't get to it immediately, it's not going to help you decelerate whenever you're cutting and pivoting and things. And that can potentially lead to same side, but also contralateral ACL tears, right? And so if you're unable to decelerate on your involved side, because you can't generate force rapid enough, then there's going to be more stress going on to your other side when you're cutting, pivoting, and potentially increasing that risk of like non-contact injuries. But like I said, like when when I did it, we did it isometrically at 60, which I think is fine. Like if I if I were to do it now, my thought is that like an isokinetic might be a little bit better. But but I think the big things you want to look for is how much force you can put out, how fast does it happen, and how does that look compared to the other side, and then also to like your body weight. Yeah, for sure. I think. I'm team isokinetic just because if you think about sport, you're going to be creating force at different angular velocities. So usually with the isokinetic test, you'll do different angular velocities and there's different protocols within the biodex could do 120, 180 and 240 degrees per second. And it's just going to give you more information regarding any deficits they might have, especially at rates of rapid force production at higher angular velocities. So this is kind of relevant to, I think we did a analysis or we, we did a, journal club regarding Achilles reconstruction in their actual biodex testing. And those that did not have an Achilles reconstruction demonstrated lower force production at higher angular velocities, which obviously is not ideal for sport. So I think it's just important to look at different rates of force production at different angular velocities. Yeah, I think one little caveat to that is that at least in like the sh- shoulder literature, they find that at your higher, you know, isokinetic ang- angular velocities, the reliability decreases pretty significantly. So I'm not sure if that is the same with the knee. I haven't looked into that at all, but I know in the shoulder, like as the feet gets faster, the reliability decreases. So. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I had no idea that that even occurred in the shoulder, but I'll be honest, I have only done maybe 10 return to sport like shoulder tests in my whole life. And this was probably like pre-PT school as like an aid operating a biodex machine, which in hindsight, probably outside of what I should have been doing. But again, I was trained in in that world and took exercise prescription classes in college and felt fairly comfortable operating the machine and instructing the test. I think I was qualified. I mean, yeah. It's hard to say. I wasn't really reading into the details of the test at the time. I was more of just conducting the test and letting the physical therapist interpret the findings. So yeah, I think it was fun. I think that's important. I mean, it's kind of like how, you know, like doctors, like the nurses are much better at like blood draws and things like that than doctors are. Doctors are just much better at interpreting the data, right? So it's kind of the same exact thing. You were trained on how to operate a machine and then you gave it to the PT who actually knew what they were talking about when they were trying to interpret it. So I think that's good. Yeah, agreed. All right, let's talk about transitioning into running. Week 12 is kind of like that milestone where physicians and typically therapists will say, all right, by week 12, we want to try to get your running. You want that 80% quad index compared to the uninvolved side. And then I think this is a good opportunity to educate on some like soreness running rules. I think this kind of ties back into load management, letting the patient know, hey, we're going to wean into running, monitor your soreness, give them a guided progression continue the education on swelling. What else do you feel like is important in this phase, Mike? I think the one thing is that like, I've started to like toward 12 weeks, just being like too soon. I just, most people just 
aren't ready to run at that time. Uh, so I've, I've generally been just holding off on people on running a little bit because if we're not returning to sport till like nine months, it's not like they need six months of running to build up their running endurance. So if there's someone that's okay waiting, what I've normally been doing is, is letting them know that I'm going to look for things that your surgeon probably isn't he's probably going to let you know that i deal with mostly male surgeon that that's why i'm saying he you're going to get referred he's going to tell you you're good to like run jump do these other things when he gives you that clearance then we're going to assess a few things and kind of see where you're at and that's going to let us know whenever you can get back to running but i just i just don't think people have the quad strength at that point it's really hard to get back 80 percent quad strength by 12 weeks post-op so i tend to wait and then just keep my priorities where i think they should be at that point which is just continuing to build strength and getting them good neuromuscular control yeah i agree i find 14 to 16 weeks is kind of like that sweet spot for me as far as getting the 80% back and feeling comfortable with kind of their dynamic stability. We'll introduce a step and hold exercise, which is kind of like a simulated initial contact to loading phase for running and looking at their neuromuscular control with that. Definitely like to add some static, like isometric hip abduction and standing with the stance leg being the surgical leg to focus on. It's almost like a snapshot of that loading phase where glute med is really trying to control the femur and decrease some of that dynamic internal rotation. So I like to add that static exercise in combination with the step and hold to kind of simulate the neuromuscular demands of running in addition to my quadriceps strengthening. And then I'll start them on some jogging at about 14 to 16 weeks. Once they get the 80%, the article that we're kind of using as a template to kind of guide our discussion is the Adams article with Schneider Mackler out of Delaware. And they suggest that you can actually undergo some early hop testing as early as 12 weeks, which I think is pretty interesting as long as the quadricep strength is at least 80%. And they use the single hop, triple hop, cross hop, and six meter hop. And then they also advocate that agility, plyometric, and sport specific, specific activities can be added, showing that they have no adverse effects with their running progression. I'm leaning more towards like 14 to 16 weeks to start doing some of this stuff where I think they have the criteria at 12. But again, I think it depends on the context of the discussion. If you have Adrian Peterson, who is trying to get back to playing football ASAP, maybe you could be a little bit more aggressive. He has preoperative conditioning, he could probably handle that at 12 weeks, and that's probably what he did to get back so quickly but again you just got to think about the context of your of your patient yeah i don't see the point in doing hop testing at 12 weeks like there's no need we have nine months till you get back to sport why are we doing what in theory you know is like our return to sport testing at that phase the juice isn't worth the squeeze the graft is still not quite as strong as we want it to be at that point i don't want you know some 15 year old athlete that could barely hop beforehand trying to do high level hop testing at that point. Yeah. I, I, I don't see the point. We, we know that we need to get them strong. We know that that's the most important thing for decreasing retail rates in the future. So what I, I don't think we need to jump, you know, three, four months ahead in our rehab program, just because, you know, it says it might be safe. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then Mike, when do you allow your patient to go back to full range of motion on a knee extension and or leg press or squat? If it's super lightweight, 
I'll probably let them go back around uh, maybe like four months or so, give or take on like a single leg lighter weight. And then I start to kind of just gradually increase the weight from there. Um, I think they say like the graft is like almost like revascularized. You, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I want to say around like 16 weeks or so, give or take when it starts to get kind of like revascularized, the body starts to kind of make it its own. It kind of goes to that like lig- ligamentization process. Around that 16 week timeline is when I start to kind of open it up a little bit. And then as far as starting the agility ladder, just some like low level, like 50, 75% agility type movements. Are you looking at about 14 to 18 weeks, probably closer to 14 to 16? I'll normally do that stuff before I, before we start running, I'll do some like agility ladder stuff, even some like light little box jumps, a little bit of jumping before I get back into running. Cause it's like, if you don't have good quad strength, you're going to get some anterior knee pain. You don't have good hip control. You're going to get some anterior knee pain. And then, and then we're battling that the whole time. And and our goal is to get the quad strength back. So why would I want to add something in that's going to increase the risk of anterior knee pain? So I think I can get some agility stuff with the ladder, maybe with a little bit of jumping kind of keep them moving in the right direction and work me toward my angle, getting them back to play sport without the risk of anterior knee pain the same way that running would. So I'll, I'll introduce that stuff in normally around that like 12 week phase when the doctor's like, okay, you can go back to running, jumping, kind of all of that stuff. I'll start there. So it, it makes it kind of seem to the patient like I'm listening to their surgeon. We're on the same page. These are the stuff that we're going to do first. And then same thing around that, you know, 14, 16, 18 weeks, whatever, I'll get them back into actually running. I think you make a good point there because I feel like in my mind as a young clinician, I would think like, all right, jogging is before agility and then agility is probably before jumping or kind of like in line with jumping. Like that's kind of how like my my train of thought would take me. But when you think about jogging or even running, it's repetitive hopping on one leg. I mean, you have your contact phase and then you have a 60% floating phase and then you're hopping again onto the next leg that's going to contact the ground. So in theory, double leg jumping is probably less of a demand than repetitive hopping on one leg or jogging. So I think it's kind of like a weird mind frame switch to even think that way. But I think, I think you're right on target. Yeah. And gr- your ground reaction forces with your jumping are going to be significantly less than with jogging. Um, you can even do, if you want to work on getting their kind of springiness back, some little like pogo hops or kind of springing off their calves a little bit. Um, that kind of gets that kind of calf springiness back. But yeah, I think there's in the past couple of years, I've been doing a lot more things before I get back to running than, than I used to. So 12 weeks, Mike, is that, is that when you're you're jumping or are you looking more like 14 to 16 weeks you're jumping it all depends on the athlete but 12 weeks most people can handle like some super light jumping sometimes i'll get someone that just their knee that they're just kind of fearful their, their knees just not doing very well but those are mostly the people that don't really want to get back to a high level of sport they're not like super naturally athletic so they're going to have a slower rehab progression overall anyway so i think the thing is like don't force it wait till your patient's ready like understand what you need to do to to, to get them ready right like if they're super fearful fearful jumping off of that leg, then you need to work on your squatting, your maybe work on squatting a little bit more rapidly, staggered stand squats where they're kind of forced to load up that side a little bit more, get them more comfortable loading that side. But yeah, I, I think I think not forcing is probably the important thing. And then when do you uh, transition into some hopping? Give us a time frame and then some criteria that, that you feel like somebody's ready to go into more of like your 180 jumps, your double leg hop to single leg landing, those type of things that are a little bit more impactful. Five months, give or take, I'll start that kind of single leg progression. You know, I might start it with just like some very, light single leg like a, a step and hole but like more exaggerated right where they're kind of 
doing like a, you know, maybe like a 50% jump forward landing on one foot. Some skiers are a good way to introduce some kind of lateral single leg loading. If they're a little more coordinated, I'll do jump off of two feet and land on one. If it's a good athlete, then kind of jumping off two feet, landing on one is a good one. Or very simply, just kind of have them step off a box, a very low box, and just kind of land on one foot. But yeah, that, that, that's normally going to be around five months that I start to introduce some of that stuff. And then talk us through your patient education and instruction. For example, I feel like those first like 12, 16 weeks, there's a lot of progression. There's a lot of guidance. And then once you get to 16, there's a lot of like independent gym stuff where they're kind of like showing up, walking themselves through the program. Maybe you're watching some of their movements with like jumping, things like that. How do you start to transition your plan of care? Are you still having them come in twice a week for the whole time? Or how are you distributing their visits at this point in a way that you feel is effective where they're not going to slack off and lose strength and you're going to still keep a good eye on them throughout the rest of the rehabilitation up to nine or 12 months. Yeah, it's it's all dependent on the patient. Like in in our kind of different phases, you know, we kind of talked about that like zero to four week phase, that like four to eight week phase, that eight to 12 week phase, and maybe that 12 to 16, and then kind of like beyond. So in each of those phases, if they look great, and they've kind of checked off all of the boxes that I need them to check off, then I'll probably go from maybe seeing them two times a week to like one time a week. It's kind of like within each phase, it's dependent. Uh, but once we get beyond that, that 16 week time, unfortunately, it kind of like depends on their insurance. If they have like an awesome insurance that's going to give them, you know, 30, 40 visits a year or whatever it is, or potentially more, and they enjoy coming, then I might still be able to keep seeing them two times a week where we'll do one day that's more strength heavy, one day that's more sport specific type heavy. But if endurance is kind of limiting us, then what I'll tend to do is I'll get them going on a really good strengthening program for outside of therapy. All varies based on what they have access to. So if they have good gym access, then it makes it a little bit easy, right? Because we can do kind of our open chain knee extensions, which is nice to kind of work in. They can squat if they're if they have good form and that's something they feel comfortable with. We can load up our split squats and all those things. Same thing with, with like lunging. But if they don't, then it kind of makes it a little bit tricky where we have to kind of work in in our one session a week. A little bit of strengthening, kind of be like super efficient with that. And then our plyos kind of toward the end. So if they have gym access, here's your strengthening stuff for outside of here. And then in clinic, we can do a little bit of strength stuff, make sure things are looking good, maybe more as like a warm up. And then we do kind of like our more plyo agility, sports specific type stuff. Gotcha. And after 16, you're comfortable with them going to the gym, full, full uh, range of motion, long arc, leg press, doing like some normal leg day type stuff, or what restrictions do you advocate for? All depends on the patient. Some people are, I just trust more so than others. Some people are more confident than others. So, I mean, I think it's very patient specific when I do that. I'd say normally by like 18 to 20 weeks, pretty much everyone is like comfortable kind of doing their own thing at home. But sometimes even in that like 16 week phase, they're just like not quite there yet. And that might be because I work with a lot of like younger people. So if you have a 14, 15 year old, like if you think back to what you were when you were that age, you might not have been fully comfortable rehabbing your injured knee on your own. So, but other people are, so it's, it's very patient specific, but around that 16 week phase is probably when I start to be more comfortable with them. Yeah. Kind of going, going a little more full board at the gym where if they have a meniscus repair, I might wait just a little bit longer. I don't want that thing to keep blowing up a little too much on them. Yeah. You, you just seg- segued us into the next conversation that I wanted to have as far as ACL with meniscus injury, when they do a meniscectomy that's performed concurrently, there's really no modification. I mean, a meniscectomy, it's kind of just like monitor swelling, get range of motion. It's kind of free reign because there's really 
nothing to protect. It's only when they have that meniscus repair that you want to be a little more cautious with your weight bearing. The Adams article that we're following here indicates that some progressive weight bearing is more beneficial than just completely non-weight bearing for those first six weeks. So I'm in accordance with that. I think you got to load it a little bit to help it build some resiliency and tolerance to load. And then again, most uh, or a lot of meniscal injuries tend to be that posterior horn. So you want to be very cautious of any deep knee flexion, loaded knee flexion, like Mike was alluding to earlier. And then honestly, after those first eight weeks with those considerations for knee flexion and weight bearing, pretty much the same exact rehab with some additional considerations like you were mentioning in regards to like swelling and increasing a lot of joint impact. But again, that's just kind of a clinical feel thing. It's less of any concrete restriction that is provided by the surgeon or any protocol. And what I wanted to use the meniscal injury with ACL to segue into was BFR. I think these are really good BFR candidates because they're very limited in what they can do early on. So it really helps you get that extra strengthening when your exercise selection is somewhat limited by all the restrictions. So Mike, if you have access to BFR, I'm not sure if you do in your clinical setting, I know that we do over at sports. Do you feel like you use BFR with every single ACL patient or is it only specific ones that have like a concomitant meniscal injury or some type of other tissue involvement that limits the exercise selection and the strengthening progression? I don't have access to it, which is a bit of a sore subject, but if I did have access to it, I would use it on, I think everyone, like it is uncomfortable when, when, when you put it on, um, like I have a set of like my own personal cuffs that I'm using. It's not like the most comfortable thing to do. So if I have like a little like 13 year old, right. That like, just, I'm going to put that thing on and he's going to look at his mom and like cry. Like, yeah, maybe not like we're, we're fine with some other stuff. Like he, He'll be okay long-term. It just might take him another month to get his quad strength back, but I'm not going to lose too much sleep over that. But anyone that can tolerate it, I mean, I think that the the water's there. Like you're going to get better strength and hypertrophy gains. You can use it just with your like NMES, just slap it on while they're on stem with like ice on their knee if they can tolerate that. If you're super early in rehab and kind of scared to use it more functionally, you can do quad sets, straight leg raises, and all of a sudden we get this extra strength and hypertrophy gain of the quad, which is like the big thing that we need to get back. So I think anyone that can tolerate it, that doesn't have any sort of contraindications to it, I think is absolutely a good candidate, even without having a meniscus uh, repair. And I'm not too sure what the literature says in regards to BFR with ACL rehab versus non-BFR, but anecdotally, Mike, I know you've done a lot of ACL rehab pre-BFR before it was popular. And now you probably, I think towards our tail end of our internships at sports, we started to use it a little bit more. Do you feel anecdotally that you've seen improvements and faster progressions in the patients that use BFR? Or is it more of let's just maximize every opportunity that we have at our disposal? I haven't really seen enough to have any good anecdotal evidence, to be honest. But I mean, based on all the other anecdotes out there, it seems like it's pretty darn good. And the research is kind of backing it up. So I don't have any anecdotes, but I think the the, the, the literature is kind of pointing in, in, in the direction of, I think we should probably be using it early on more so than we're not. Use it early on and I think get off of it whenever you can start to get heavy loading without it. Any other comments, Mike, before we wrap up here? No, I think there was a good article that came out. It wasn't really a research article. It was more of just like a criterion functional progression that was put out by a guy, I think Randall Cooper is the name. Yeah, it was uh, the ACL Rehabilitation Guide by Randall Cooper. 
And it's a super easy to follow, just kind of gives you kind of different like things that you want to check off in each phase. It gives you example exercises during each phase. It's a pretty good thing to follow, especially if you're like a new clinician and are looking for some like kind of like stepwise guidance, the maybe the protocol that you were given from your surgeon isn't super great. But yeah, so it's ACL Rehabilitation Guide by Randall Cooper, and he did a pretty darn good job with it. And I I'll also reference this if I feel like I want to kind of like a quick little refresher on some kind of functional things that I can do at different phases. Cool. Yeah, I think that's a good resource. And I think this was a good discussion, Mike. I mean, even for myself, I don't do too much ACL rehab anymore, just because I'm so focused on spine care at this point. But I do get one every now and then and I still have to use a refresher, especially as I start to progress into some deeper phases, get some ideas for different sports specific functional things and even kind of refresh my my milestones if it's something I haven't done in a while. So this was a good refresher for myself. And I think a good discussion for our listeners as well. But I think this wraps up for season three, episode two. We will try to produce episode three within the next two or three weeks here. And we look forward to having continued discussions and thanks for listening, guys.